Kizar Podcast. My name is Adam Kadura. I am your host by trade and training. I am a football coach. I've coached linebackers at Laney College for the last seven years. Also been a radio journalist working with the Associated Press, covering the NFL, also CBS, sports radio, number of other outlets, uh, doing freelance work covering the San Francisco 49ers. Did that for about five years, um, and now we're here. And you're probably wondering why I started this podcast in the first place. Well, there's a few things I would say. I would say, number one, this has been a huge passion of mine. You know, since I was a kid, the 49ers were my first love. Felt like my only love for, for a long time. And I've always kind of needed an outlet. I feel like I've needed to do something like this because uh, I'm bursting at the seams to talk about the 49ers and, and everything that it entails. We're coming off the hinges of the worst loss in franchise history, in my opinion. Most of you bear witness to it. It was awful. It was an awful feeling. You kind of knew in that overtime period where things were going to go, right? It's tough. It was really, really tough. I, I, you know, I just remember when Mahomes pretty much got across the 50 yard line. I got up, got up from the couch that I'd spent, you know, for those that don't know, I'm 29 years old, going to turn 30 this year. I spent so many Sundays on my parents' couch in that living room watching the 49ers, watching them stink from the years of 2004 all the way up to 2010, all those seasons. So many times they disappointed me during those seasons, and not much has changed since then. They've certainly gotten better, certainly are a much more, a much better representation of what the San Francisco 49ers ought to be. You know, when I was a kid, the Niners were so bad that I often had to watch, you know, NFL films or clips of NFL films, America's Game, anything that showed when the Niners were actually good to get me excited for football season, excited about football. Um, And it had me dreaming of one day they would raise uh, a Lombardi trophy that I would bear witness to. And so far, they're 0-3 in those tries. They've come so close. They've come about as close as you can come to you know, getting the deal done uh, without getting the deal done. So very painful, but you know, the, it is what it is. We're going to dive deep in a, into what happened in Super Bowl 58 in a later um, episode, probably the next episode, um, you know, coming next week, maybe sooner. Who knows? I might grow impatient. But today, the breaking news, Steve Wilkes is out as the defensive coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers. Um, After just one season and fielding top five defense in the league, 
it's a tough deal. It is that's as tough a deal as you can draw. You know, no matter what you think of Steve Wilkes, you know, statistically speaking, he he did what they needed him to do in the statistical category. But football's not all about stats, and I'm here to tell you that as a coach, as somebody who works um, under a defensive coordinator, who works on the defensive side of the ball, who has dedicated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours uh, to perfecting my craft as a coach, um, knowing the game, being a student of the game, being a guru at my position um, as a linebacker's coach. Uh, it takes an uh, the, the amount of effort, let me tell y'all, the amount of time, resources, energy, blood, sweat, tears you put in as a coach at the college level, it is not for the faint of heart. It truly is not. We could be here all podcast. I could do a whole podcast breaking down what it means to be a college football coach, what it means to recruit, coach, you know, build relationships with your players, do all those things. Um, so I can sympathize with Steve Wilkes on a number of fronts and kind of relate to what, you know, what it means to be a defensive coach on that front. But like I said earlier, stats are definitely not you know, not everything in football. And in fact, the film is everything, right? The film doesn't lie. Stats will never paint the whole picture. It won't give you the same picture that the film will, right? You know, if you're going to choose stats or watch the film yourself, you're, you're going to watch the film every time. And, and, and the stats don't pick up certain nuances. The stats don't pick up certain situations, you know, football is all about situations, situational awareness, ability to make plays in certain situations. It's everything. And we'll, we'll, we'll dive into those specifics, you know, but by starting this podcast, I knew I was undertaking, you know, I wanted to bring deep level analysis, top level analysis to analyzing the 49ers drawing examples from the coach's film, drawing examples um, from concrete evidence, um, doing the work to watch the film. It's a lot of work. It takes like three or four hours to break down film, and that's just in, in the basic sense of it. You could break it down. You could break down film any way you want, any way you want. You could break it down by, you know, down in distance, by yards, pass yards, rushing yards. You could break it down by formation. You could break it down by so many different ways. And that's kind of up, it's up to personal discretion. And what, what are you trying to find? What story are you trying to find in the film that you're watching, right? What are you trying to find out? And with Super Bowl 58, I, you know, set out on a mission to find out what happened. And that is for a later episode, hopefully coming soon here, because that is, uh, it, it takes a lot of work, right, to, to, to actually find the concrete evidence to build an opinion as to what exactly happened in the Super Bowl. Because I got to tell you, I, I, I just... I get frustrated with some of the analysis that I hear from certain media pundits, right? As I'm sure you are, right? 
Uh, I think there's good analysis out there. There's bad analysis out there. But the analysis I just can't stand is is the surface level stuff. And I think, you know, there's there's certain, you know, levels of analysis, if you will, that are catered to a specific audience. But for me as a coach who knows the game, uh, you know, more than your average, right? Obviously, being a coach, I can see some of the nuances in the game that others just can't, right? You know, so when I hear certain things, certain analysis, and I know, just know in my heart of hearts and in my gut that it comes from a place that I looked at the cliff notes of the game and I, I skimmed over the game, it, um, and then I'm going to give you a half you know what sort of opinion on what happened, a hasty generalization, whatever it is, it drives me nuts, right? And listen, it sells, it gets ratings, it, you know, obviously I was, you know, a media, a person in the media, right? I understand where these people are coming from. It's a business just like the NFL is a business and the business's purpose is to make money, um, and whatever gets views makes money and generates revenue, right? So I'm not mad at it. Um, I'm just going to <laughs> be the change that I want to see, uh, so to speak. And I don't even know if I want it change, but I do want to bring you as, as, as good an a- of analysis of the San Francisco 49ers as I can possibly give you. Um, I'm looking at these games as if, You know, I'm a coach through the lens of a coach using my experience to kind of translate what's happening for y'all. And I think the big challenge, the big challenge is how can I speak in coaching terms, but also make it something that you understand, that you can take home, that you can learn something. And that's my responsibility, right? I can't just come on here and... Um, start spewing this, that, and the other um, so the cryptic jargon, right? That we use as coaches because it's a very like. I tell you this: the first day I started coaching, I realized how <laughs> you know in 2018. That's when I started coaching. I tell you what: I, I showed up that first day in that first meeting, and I realized how much I didn't know about football. I mean, it was straight. It was German. Speaking German, Josh Ramos, who's defensive coordinator at Laney College, he held that first defensive team meeting that I was a part of, and I didn't even know where to begin. And so I just started asking questions uh, and really working my tail off. I started off as a defensive assistant that first year, being useful anywhere I could. They entrusted me with more responsibility. I worked my way up the ladder, and they rewarded me by giving me, you know, a position, a position group, right? Gave me the outside linebackers, which I've been coaching recently have stepped down from that position for a number of reasons, purely my decision, you know, with where I'm at in my life. And, you know, unfortunately coaching is just, you know, it's (laughs) for those that are not the, the Kyle Shanahan's and Bill Belichick's and, uh, Andy Reid's of the world, you know, or those that are not head coaches and major division one coaches, it's not the most financially rewarding position, right? So it's challenge. It's, it's a challenge. And, um, you know, money obviously is not everything, 
but when you're talking about, you know, I'm at a point in my life um, where, you know, obviously I've been with my girlfriend for a number of years. We have things on the horizon that we'd like to get done. Um, it just became apparent and a hard decision had to be made. So that's a little bit about me and, and my background, but back to the topic of Steve Wilkes. What a deal, man. I, I, I got to say, absolutely brutal if you're Steve Wilkes, right? I feel for the guy. I really do. I think it was Bum Phillips or Wade Phillips who said, you haven't been a coach until you've been fired. Or there's two types of coaches. Excuse me. There's, there, the saying goes, there's two types of coaches. Those that haven't been fired and those that are about to be fired or something like that. And that is part of the job, right? It, it's a very stressful part of the job being a Division One coach or an NFL coach. And a very huge reason I didn't become a Division One coach because I that did not sound like fun to me. Um, switching jobs every one to two years, moving your family, moving your kids, moving your situation all to devote your life to football you know, and just make it everything essentially. And in my heart of hearts, I love football. I, I, I love football. I really, I always say that there's a lot that's changed about me, you know, in 29 years of life, about to be 30, but my love of the game of football has not changed, um, has never changed, has never really wavered. Right. Um, you know, but at the same time, I there's other things in life I, I love, like my family, my friends, my my girlfriend, my, you know, spending time with those people that I care about. And as a football coach at that level, forget that. I mean, that's a rarity. You know, I know NFL coaches that have worked 30 freaking days in a row, 30 days in a row without a break. Um, 12 to 16, you know, 12 to 16 hour days, you know, hardly seeing their spouses, hardly seeing their kids, missing every important event you could think of. Some coaches miss the, the birth of their own children. And, you know, every time I think about that, my decision, I couldn't be more glad that I didn't take, because I did have an opportunity to coach at a division one school. I'm glad I turned it down. It wasn't for me. It's clearly for somebody else. You know, but I digress. This is this is about Steve Wilkes. So I think we have to, to travel back in time. Obviously, last year they hired Steve Wilkes um, to take over for D'Amico Ryans, who went on to take the Texans job. And he took over, and I think we have to start out with the results. Statistically speaking, like I said, he produced a top defense in the NFL. But when you look at the coach's film and when you look at the personnel and you weigh everything into you know into account, I think it, it was the correct decision to probably part ways from from Steve Wilkes from Kyle Shanahan's perspective. There were multiple things for me that I saw as a defensive coach throughout the year that you know, just didn't make sense. You know, you had 
if we want to break down the different levels of the defense, because there's multiple ways to, to, to break this down with Steve Wilkes and to understand why he wasn't a great fit. Ultimately, Kyle Shanahan, he's, he only, only he has the true answer as to why it didn't work out. But clearly, clearly the two didn't mesh. You know, philosoph- philosophically, um, it felt like when Kyle Shanahan hired Steve Wilkes, maybe, I don't know this for a fact, but maybe he was foreseeing Wilkes to be something he wasn't. And so I can't tell you what the thought process was behind hiring Steve Wilkes. I'm, I'm sure he's a great defensive coordinator in his own right. I'm hearing a lot of different things that, you know, Kyle, you know, Shanahan forced Wilkes to hire, you know, run his system. Well, if that was the case, then why don't you just hire from the inside, right? I don't really understand if you already have a system in place, why you wouldn't just hire uh, an assistant coach, a defensive assistant coach or a position coach that you've groomed as the head coach under your system to just run your system. You don't need to hire externally. So I, I, I've heard all this. Um, I've heard those things. It doesn't really add up to me. I'm just going to be honest. It doesn't, doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. So that's, that's the first thing for me. The second thing, I saw things in the way he ran his defense that were things that I would not prefer to do <laughs> if I were the defensive coordinator. I think right off the bat, the first thing that comes from mind, especially during these playoffs, far too often, listen, uh, every defense coordinator has their own philosophy, and I'm going to try to be as respectful as possible because I do have respect for these coaches. I know how hard they work. I know what they go through, and they're human beings, so I'm going to respect them. But at the end of the day, the, there's a lot of things that he did and his defenses did on the field that I had a problem with. Number one... You know, if we look at the D-line, if we break down the D-line, ultimately the way the D-line performs on the field uh, is on the defensive coordinator, right? Everything falls back on the coach. Coach has to take responsibility. And they had problems stopping the run. And for my money, listen, I watched all the film, every game, you know, the all 22 coaches film. For my money, the problem with the defensive line was, number one, a lack of technique, right? Like the the technique they were using was not, for my money, very sound. Um, you know, it doesn't seem, it didn't seem like they had enough gap integrity, meaning um, if we're going to, again, break this down, and this is the challenge, right? How do I, how do I break this ter- ta- down like really simply so that you can understand and learn? So gap integrity, gap technique, um, you know, what are gaps? If we look at an offensive line between the center and the guard is the A gap, between the guard and the tackle is the B gap, outside the tackle is the C gap, and so on and so forth. When you draw up run fits, everybody is assigned a gap to fill, right? When I look at uh, defense, when I teach my linebackers run fits, I, I, I paint it to them like this. We, as a defense, are a dam holding the water, right? The water's the offense. Our job in the run game is to plug the leaks in the dam, 
for every leak or crack in the dam that's, you know, water's coming out, that is a gap. That is the A gap or the B gap or the C gap that we have to plug and fill. And every person has just one leak, one leak they got to fill and, and seal up. The second somebody doesn't fill or, or the, the one gap that doesn't get filled by um, a linebacker or a D lineman or a safety or a corner, um, that's when big issues start to happen. It's a discipline thing, and it is an attitude. It's a mindset on every single play that you're going to do this to stop the run. And it is not easy. It is very difficult because you're facing, you have to, as a defensive coordinator, you have to account for different run schemes. When you when you drop your game plan, you have to say, okay, what run schemes do they run? What is our plan to fit them up out of our defense based on our rules, right? So that's number one. It seemed like, you know, I saw something today that Kyle Shanahan was talking about. There's a disconnect with the linebackers on fits. Uh, if there's any disconnect in where the linebackers fit in the run game, it is, it is bad news. That is bad, bad news. As a coach, you need to be concrete. You need to be absolutely crystal clear on assignment and responsibility. There cannot be no gray area when you go into game into a game. There cannot be, you cannot have a defensive player on the field second guessing what they're doing. The whole point of practice is to have an assignment, execute that assignment. So when you go into game day, you've you practiced it so well so many times that you don't even think. You just play. You play freely because you practice so hard. So if I'm Fred Warner or Oren Burks or Flanagan Fowles or, or Dre Greenlaw and I am second-guessing where my run fit is, oh, that's bad news. That is a recipe for getting absolutely gashed in the run game. But if we're going back to the D-line, I, I, I just, the technique they were using, I'm get be real simple about it. The technique that I saw in the D-line, it was lacking for me. And it led to problems. You know, I'm trying to, I, I could go into the, what that technique is, but I just don't think, it, it would be a little too cryptic, a little too jargon. I could, you know, the, the, the way I'd talk about it would be kind of hard to understand because it's so dense. It really is. And in future shows, I'll break it down and, and, and we could break down D-line play and, and linebacker play and, and safety corner, all that stuff. We can break all that down, but, um, you know, for, for the sake of this podcast, we'll keep the focus on Wilkes. So, D-line, what's the problem? Problem is we are not playing with great technique. You know, it, it definitely felt like that gap responsibility was, was, was a big gray area. At the linebacker level, you know, I think Dre and, and Fred played really well this year. I, you know, Fred, I think, Fred Warner, I think, missed a few tackles, uh, if I uh, more tackles than I can remember him missing like in years past, but Fred Warner makes up for every time Fred Warner misses a tackle, he makes up for it with plays he makes. And Fred Warner is for my money, the best linebacker I've seen in this league. He is the best linebacker in the league. I, I watch, <laughs> I watch them all. 
I watch tape on them all. There's nobody who has the speed of Fred Warner, and that's and the playmaking ability and the ability to run. I mean, you saw it last year in the in, in the postseason. He ran with um, Ceedee Lamb. He ran stride for stride with Ceedee Lamb. That is Hall of Fame for me. That is you. You, you can't find that in just any any draft. For my money, Fred Warner should be a Hall of Famer. At, the, at his current pace, he's going to be a Hall of Famer by the time his career is over. And, he, you know, he's going to earn it and deserve it. He makes plays. He he picks off passes. He, um, you know, can get to the quarterback. He can fly around, play slide. There, there's nothing that guy can't do. There's nothing he can't do. And he was a huge force in the postseason and a big reason why they came back in those playoff games. Um, at the corner position, I think the one thing, you know, obviously the, the the 49ers, I think the one step in the right direction they did take this year was at corner. For my money, um, Lenore and Ward are the best corners the Niners have had in my lifetime. Since maybe even Deion Sanders and Merton Hanks in, 90, in the 94-95 Super Bowl run. Uh, I, 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 if somebody can come up with a better tandem... Uh, you be my guest. You you hit me up on at Keysar Podcast and let's talk about it. Let's debate it. Um, I want to you know if you're listening to this podcast and you agree or disagree or want to talk with me about any of these subjects, please tweet at or tweet at me. I, I refuse to call it X. It just it it, it doesn't jive with me. I'm going to keep calling it Twitter. Um, please engage with me. I love I live to talk about this stuff and have debates and stuff like that. It's all fun. I love it all, so don't be afraid to do that. But Demo and Ward, uh Charvarius Ward, I guess he's his nickname is Mooney. I'm not really sure. You know, I, I guess he prefers to be called Mooney Ward, but um Lenore and Ward are easily maybe the best um corner tandem in the league. Right, and I tell you what, man, Demo came to play in the postseason. That dude was fitting up the run. That dude was getting the ball out, as you saw in the Super Bowl. That dude was not getting beaten coverage. Top flight corners. Those are cornerstone pieces. Those are you have to feel good at corner going into next season. Feel really, really good. Outside of those top two, obviously Oliver and Thomas struggled. One point, Logan Ryan came in um, off a cruise ship and played snaps right away. Kind of speaks to the level of desperation that they felt they needed um, to add a veteran DB for the playoff run. It, it it says a lot, right? So maybe they draft a a third corner, you know, to shore things up at the you know the third spot and whatnot. But you know, Ambry Thomas, I didn't think played bad at what played poorly uh, at all. Um, for most of the season, I think for being a third corner, that guy played really, really well, right? So at the at the corner in the in in the corner, at the at the corner position group, uh, I I don't have any complaints. Uh, safety, what an interesting year at safety. You know, I thought Tashawn Gibson, like obviously his strength as a safety is assignment. You know, I didn't I don't recall seeing many blown assignments. Yeah, he got turned around in the Super Bowl. That's kind of a <laughs> listen. You're you know that it happens, right? Mistakes happen, um, but if we're talking about a full body of work, Gibson played a great a great year. 
And I, I don't know if he's going to be back next year. It's certainly an interesting situation with uh, Hufunga and his injury. Um, you know, and if he's going to be ready for training camp, um, you got Jair Brown, who I thought stepped up in a big way in his rookie season. So interesting to see how he progresses in the offseason. Looked like he got hurt there in the Super Bowl. So I'm wondering if, if anything's up with him. Um, hopefully no major injuries for him, but certainly an interesting situation, whether obviously, you know, if Gibson's asking for any kind of significant money that the Niners are cash strapped. I mean, they have uh, like hardly any cap space as far as I understand. I could be wrong about that, but for everything that I'm seeing and reading, uh, he, or excuse me, the Niners are, are really cash strapped. And it'll be interesting to see how they navigate the offseason. We will talk about that. We will absolutely break down where I think they should go um, from here in terms of their, of their direction at, um, you know, with the team, with the organization, all those all those great things that will come in due time. So we, we've broken down every level of Steve Wilkes's like the personnel, right? The fact is, Steve Wilkes had an all-time personnel group at defense. I, I don't care how you slice it. The talent was there across the board. They had linebackers. They had corners. They had more than good enough safeties. They had the D-line room, well-documented, was absolutely stacked. So when you take all that into account, uh, there's no excuse for not fielding a defense, a top-flight defense. And you could argue that just about any defensive coordinator could have success with that kind of talent in the room. Because at the end of the day, I will tell you this, you know, success defensively is about Jimmy's and Joe's and not X's and O's. You know, you put Nick Bosa in any defense and he is going to automatically make you better, automatically make game-changing plays. So that's that. Um, In terms of scheme, how I felt this... I think if you, you know, I don't really know where to start, but I will start with, let's start with, you know, the pressure packages, the blitzes, things of that nature. I just felt like watching the All-22 all year, there was a lack of fine detail in the blitzes that were called. There was a lack of disguise um, I mean, I mean, there was disguise. I shouldn't say that. That's incorrect. Um, but when they did have the the pressure looks at the line, um, what they did after post snap kind of drove me nuts at times because, uh, you know, at times they were dropping D Lyman in coverage, and anybody who knows me, uh, uh-uh. uh, there's if I'm a defensive coordinator, there no way. Will you catch me dropping Chase Young, dropping Randy Gregory, dropping Nick Bosa? It is not going to happen. D linemen are not paid to cover people. They will look like they're lost in the sauce every single time. They're going to look like Bambi on stilts out there. It is bad. It is horrible. It's not good, right? I think... You know, I have a little bit of a soft spot for the, you know, in the, I could have sworn, I think it was, if I if I remember correctly, in the championship game against the Lions, they dropped Chase Young a few times. Now, Chase Young's a great athlete. You could make the argument that 
at it. You could, you know, Chase Young could be an outside backer. He's that athletic, but not quite, right? Like I've seen the way he moves. Um, he's an outstanding, outstanding athlete at D-line. Uh, as a D-lineman. Outstanding. He is the mold. He is a creative player at D-lineman. Uh, he's got the size, the height, the length, the strength, like the athleticism, the whole freaking nine yards. But still, like you just don't ask guys to in in critical situations to do things that they don't normally do, that they're not paid to do. It just doesn't. I I just don't believe in it for my money. So that's one of the major issues I had, and it just you know certain things you do as a defensive coordinator that give signals. They give signals as to your philosophy, your thought process, X, Y, and Z. For my money, that really turned me off. And respectfully speaking, I just, it's personally, I, I just would not advise to do that. The secondary in coverage, obviously, I think the strength of Steve Wilkes is coverage for the results he put out. Now, he had two great corners. Um, now, whether Steve Wilkes elevated Charverius Ward and Diamondo Lenore, um, you know, that that I don't know. That I can't answer. I, I'd have to be at the facility. I'd have to be around that every day. I'd have to have conversations with those corners to, whether, to learn whether or not that is the case, right? So I, I don't know that. Um, what I do know is the results were good. Right in in coverage, I really didn't have a problem. That was never that wasn't really the issue. So if we if we look around the room, if we look at both corners, and we look at coverage in general, I, my biggest gripe, another thing that I saw that was just another signal, like ah, like I I, I what are we? What are we thinking here in coverage and whatnot? I think they did a good job mixing it up in different looks and different coverages and whatnot. But when they played man coverage, right, and typically you have one high safety or two high safeties when you're playing man, uh, typically one high because just personnel, resources-wise, um, to allocate you know one defensive player to cover an offensive player, it's easier to play one high right, one high safety to have the personnel available to play man coverage. Now, you could play man coverage with two safeties in the game. You could play man coverage any way you want, right? But when they did play man coverage, what I did have a big problem with is I, some of the, number one, some of the looks were predictable, right? So Super Bowl, late in the game, forgive me. I don't know what what time of the game it was. I know it was late. I know it is a critical juncture in the game. Maybe I think it was either the last drive. It was probably the last drive of overtime, I think, for the game. It was a critical moment, critical down and distance, and they came out with a look, and Kyle Shanahan calls a timeout, and I, I am 95% certain he covered his mic with his play sheet, and said, get a better call in Steve Wilkes. And when I saw the look of the defense, I stood up right away and I said, call timeout, call timeout. Like, that is, it's too predictable. And the look I'm referring to is, if you go back to that play, you'll notice that the DBs were all in a row 
about 10 to 12 yards off the line of scrimmage. Uh, I wish I could pull up the play right here and, and paint a little bit more accurate picture for you. But when you see that, it is, you automatically know everybody, even a high school football player knows, a high school football coach knows that's man coverage. That is not a good enough look. It's not good enough defense um, for my money. I think there's certain situations for it maybe, possibly. I think the thought process behind it, what it's called is like offensive players referred to as birds on a fence, right? You see all the birds lined up on a fence in a straight line. You see all those DBs, corners, and safeties lined up in a straight line. You know it's man. They're playing off man. And cover zero, right? More specifically, what is cover zero? So the number, cover is coverage, right? Obviously, the the number is how many safeties are high, right? I'm going to explain this like you've never watched football before ever to make sure you get what I'm talking about. Cover zero means it's cat defense. I got that cat. You got that cat, right? Everybody's got a man. There's no high safety. It is the riskiest coverage you can play, right? You're betting on the pressure getting home. Now, I know there was a pressure on that play. You have to. You you would never play birds on a fence and just like hope for the best and, and just send four. It, it wouldn't make sense. And if he did do that, uh, not good, right? Not good at all. But the idea is they're in a situation where you force the ball to come out early, you make a tackle in front of you, you live to play the next down, right? Like at worst, that's what you're experiencing. But for my money, that kind of call in the Super Bowl against a world-class Hall of Fame, greatest of all time level quarterback like Mahomes, world-class Hall of Fame head coach, Greatest, maybe the greatest offensive mind ever in Andy Reid, right? Arguably, uh, they absolutely have a plan for that. There, that is not going to fool them any day of the week. They are going to have a, a check, have an audible, have something ready to go for that look. It feels like a day one install type thing. To I just. It wasn't good enough. That's why Shanahan called the timeout. I was thankful that Shanahan at the time called the timeout. And I was like, I just put my, you know, my hands through my hair. Like, that's that's the look we're coming up with? With the Super Bowl on the line? I And listen, let's be fair. It is not an uncommon thing to see throughout the league. Many, many other defenses run it. Uh, and I've seen it many, 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 many times from many, many different defenses. Um, you know, so it's not like uh, he. this is a new radical coverage that is coming out of thinner. Absolutely not. Like, you could point out 20 different defenses that, that have the same look and have shown the same look throughout the year. But that's why those 20 other defenses are not playing in the Super Bowl. Right? Like, you got to play chess in the Super Bowl. Spagnolo plays chess. Spags plays chess. What makes Steve Spagnolo a great defensive coordinator is that you, you just can't, as a quarterback, you're surveying the field and, and pre snap, you're going through your head, looking at what you're looking at. He does a great job of confusing quarterbacks changing it up, having different looks. And you could tell in the way that 
his defense is run. The detail is there, man. The the pressure looks are there. There's a reason behind everything. It's all it's art for in terms of defensive coordinator and and as in terms of being a defensive coordinator, what he does is pure art, right? He is a full master of his craft when it comes to being a defensive coordinator. You, you don't, I'm sorry, it's not the same level on the other sideline. For my money, I'm sure Steve Wilkes is a great man, great motivator, um, and he is a good coach, right? But when you're talking about trying to win a Super Bowl with a Super Bowl on the line, um, you know, it wasn't good enough. It really wasn't, especially not good enough to defeat Patrick Mahomes. And you, and you could say, listen, hey, Adam, like, how can you argue with the fact that he only held the Chiefs to 19 regulation time points? Like, you hold Pat Mahomes and co. to that many points. That should be good enough. That is elite. That is, well, yes, he did. I mean, there's no arguing with that, that the defense performed well enough to win a Super Bowl, right? It was the offense who let everybody down. Listen, you got that many dudes on offense. You only put up 22 points. It's a disappointment. It's a failure. Um, there's no two ways about it. There's, there's there's no way you can slice that and say, well, I, and there's just no excuse, right? Something, for my money, something has to change there. Um, and we'll we'll, again, we'll talk about that in a later podcast. But, you know, it just wasn't good enough um, on the on on Wilkes's uh, part, in my opinion. Just wasn't, you know, the pressures didn't really make sense. You know, the the pressures weren't elaborate enough. They weren't on Spagnolo's level. They weren't on D'Amico Ryan's level. Like, here's the thing for me. I watched that Texans Ravens playoff game. I watched all the playoff games. What else do I do? I'm a football junkie, right? And I just sat there in awe and amazement at the pressures that D'Amico Ryans was sending at Lamar Jackson in that first half. Now, D'Amico Ryans did not have the personnel to execute, you know, 60 minutes worth of shutting down the Ravens like maybe Spagnolo has. And and hopefully in a couple, you know, year, two years' time, a couple drafts, free agency, he can really put together a top flight defense there. Um, certainly got a top-flight quarterback, so he should be good there. But the difference in the way that D'Amico sends pressure from the way Wilkes sends pressure is it's drastic. It is very different. You know, last season it's, it seemed like, you know, every pressure was working that D'Amico called, that the, the, the rush was getting home. And he didn't have to send five or six guys, right? It was the stunts, the D-line stunts, um, you know, that were called at the right time, that were executed in the right way. Um, You had Nick Bosa running up the A-gap, you know, looping, right? Starting up outside, looping inside towards the center, um, you know, and coming free up the middle and in the grill of the quarterback. It's just a huge difference for me there. So, you know, I don't think Wilkes did. He didn't lose us the Super Bowl. He certainly, you know, didn't do a bad job, but it wasn't up to snuff. It wasn't good enough. For my money, you need a guy in there, especially if, 
you have to face, uh, listen, makes me nauseous just to think about, but you have to go against the Chiefs again in a Super Bowl. Listen, I would take it. You say the Niners go in the Super Bowl again next year. Uh, I'm taking that every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Like, I want a Super Bowl so, so badly, right? To see the Niners win a Super Bowl. I know you do too. And hopefully we'll make it happen. So with Wilkes gone now, uh, the question begs, where do we go from here, right? Who do we hire? The two names, the two sexy hires, if you will, would be either Mike Vrabel or Bill Belichick. For my money, it's, it's tough because if we start with Bill Belichick, this is a man who has been not just a head coach, but essentially the head coach and the general manager of the New England Patriots for, what was it, like 20 years, 20 plus years? He ran the show for that long. And if I know anything about, you know, different head coaches, different coaches, when you get to run the show, it's hard to give up, give that up. I... I find it really hard to see a world, and I could be completely wrong, where Bill Belichick would rather be a a defense coiner under another head coach, have a boss, have a difficult time thinking he's going to be okay with that, and that he'd probably rather just stay at home and then wait till next year, the next coach, Coach, head coach hiring cycle to see whether there's a better opportunity. Now, I could be completely wrong. He could totally put his ego aside. He could be the Niners defensive coordinator. For my money, he's he's the best, best available. Obviously, he's a Hall of Fame defensive mind, maybe one of the greatest defense, if not the greatest defensive mind ever. A lot of the way we do things at Laney College, uh, in my opinion, is heavily influenced on the, the the philosophy of the New England Patriots defense. There's another uh, podcast idea, I guess, breaking down what made them special so, for so many years. Um, but yeah, Bill Belichick, if he's available, you throw the kitchen sink at him, you go get him. Because here's the problem with, with Kyle Shanahan. Um... He is a brilliant coach. He is arguably the second best coach in the league. Um, what he's up against, people have to realize what he's up against in the Super Bowl is a head coach who's been coaching for, I mean, how many years, right? He, he probably has 10, 20 years of coaching experience on Kyle Shanahan, right? And... Listen, no matter how smart you are, there's no replacement for experience. And I think Andy Reid would be the first guy to tell you that. There's no replacement for experience. Um, so he's at Kyle Shanahan is at a severe disadvantage against a head coach like Andy Reid because of the experience gap. And then you have the defensive coordinator arguably the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest defensive coordinator of all time, right behind Bill Belichick. You have Steve Spagnuolo. That guy, I mean, if there was a Hall of Fame you know, spot for defensive coordinators, he's getting a gold jacket. They have also, the continuity is the biggest thing for me. Like Spagnuolo already 
had a head coaching gig. It didn't work out. And who knows? Maybe he is just fine. Sit, you know, he's done getting fired or moving in different places. He wants to just stay in one place. I wouldn't blame him. And he tried being a head coach. Maybe it wasn't for him. Maybe he'd rather be a defense coordinator. In that case, and as evidenced by his extension today, he, you know, obviously he wants to remain with the Kansas City Chiefs. And that is, I can't tell you how much of an advantage that is. To have the best defensive coordinator in the league and he's not going anywhere? Like, are you kidding me? The, the Chiefs effectively have the, the Chiefs formula of Mahomes plus Reed plus Spagnolo. Um, you throw in Kelsey there as well. That is a formula that is going to see them in Super Bowls for years to come, as long as Reed and Spagnolo still want to do it. You know, so it's unfair. And then you've got all that experience that Spagnolo has over Shanahan, and it is. It, it's, I think it, it somewhat speaks to how good Shanahan is that he's gone toe-to-toe with these juggernauts of coaches in two Super Bowls. Yes, I know he got, hasn't gotten it done. Yes, Kyle Shanahan is not perfect. Um, those are all, all those things can be true. But to coach at the level he's coaching at, at such a young, relatively young age, uh, you've seen it on, you've probably seen it on Twitter here and there. They talk about the Andy Reid to Kyle Shanahan comparison. The biggest mistakes, the, the excuse me, the biggest mistake the Philadelphia Eagles ever made in their franchise history was firing Andy Reid. Now they won a Super Bowl. Good for them. They, if, if Andy Reid was still their coach, they'd probably have Pat Mahomes. They'd probably have the three Super Bowls. That the Chiefs have. So yes, it was a mistake to let go of Andy Reid. And I'm sure they still regret that. So I implore you, right? If you're thinking about replacing Kyle Shanahan, I've always thought this, even before this year, this is an Andy Reid 2.0 situation. For my money, I know we've kind of diverted off the topic of Steve Wilkes and whatnot. We'll bring it back to Steve Wilkes in a second here. But for my money, the best bet right now is to stick with Kyle Shanahan as the coach. And I think eventually, I, I, I believe eventually he will get the job done if you give him the continuity, the time. Um, he hasn't been in San Francisco that long, right? What is it, six, seven years? That's not that long, right? Um, long enough, some might say, but, you know, shoot, Bill Belichick had all those years in New England. So compared to that, not that long. You give him enough time, I think he will get the job done. At least for all the options available, he is the best option. If you're going to call for Kyle Shanahan's job, you need, it is your responsibility, in my opinion, to have a, who is his replacement? You tell me who you're hiring instead of Kyle Shanahan. Who you are willing to tear down the entire culture that John Lynch has built, that Kyle Shanahan has built, that has seen the 49ers in two Super Bowls, that has built a winning culture year in and year out, you're going to tear all that down. You better be bringing in the second coming of Bill Walsh. If you don't have that, you're sticking with Kyle Shanahan. right? And I think the majority of Niners fans agree that that's probably the best option. right? But in case you think otherwise, 
That is my opinion, right? Feel free to disagree. I welcome it. Um, again, you can always tweet at Kizar Podcast if you feel differently um, on the subject. I'd love to hear your opinion. But that's the, but that's the book for me on Belichick. If you can get him, you get him. If not, then the next hire that kind of makes sense, uh, the next splash hire, if you will, for my money is uh, Mike Vrabel. Now, I don't know. I know he's an elite defensive mind. My question on Mike Vrabel is if he is this so-called defensive guru, and I, I his defenses are known, right, for giving the Chiefs problems, which maybe that in of itself is good enough. Like, let's just expect to face the Chiefs again if we happen to make it to the Super Bowl again next year or the year after. Let's just assume we play Mahomes again because they don't look like they're slowing down anytime soon, right? Um, they are, you know, Kelsey's getting older and whatnot, but if anybody can retool and regroup and all that, it's Andy freaking Reid. I mean, that is the key. He's the king of retooling, keeping the winning product going. The guy doesn't have losing seasons. You can bookmark them in for the playoffs next year, barring any substantial injuries. So on that premise alone, if, if Mike Vrabel, uh, so call has, has the great game plan that will, uh, stop the Kansas City Chiefs, maybe that's worth it in of itself. But my question would be, I looked at the rankings of the Titans' defense during his tenure as a head coach. Uh, my question really right off the bat would be, why is it that they only fielded like one top 10 defense in the whole time that Mike Frabel was head coach at in, in Tennessee? And listen, uh, you know, there could be a number of reasons. I don't know the specific reason, but I do know that Steve Wilkes fielded at a top five, like I think a top five defense somewhere around there, at least a top 10 defense this year. So, uh, you know, only Kyle Shanahan can really answer that. Obviously he's doing calling up people, hitting up phone lines right now, left and right. Maybe has already somebody ready to go. Um, shoot. I haven't checked X or Twitter or whatever it is in, in, in an hour doing this podcast. So things may have changed. Maybe they already hired somebody. Um, who knows? But again, I, I just, I want the next hire at defensive coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers to be a, somebody, somebody who's going to give the Niners defense a tactical advantage, somebody who plays chess, who, okay, what does that mean, right? We, we, we throw out these buzzwords all the time. I want pressures that are well-disguised, show great detail, spring guys free. If you're rushing six, one of the six gets, gets home or is unblocked. That is the sign of a good blitz, right? Play tight coverage, understand, have a great understanding of what personnel they want, um, cause there's going to be some players that they're going to need to replace, right? With, you know, it's so hard to talk about the Dre Greenlaw injury. It is, it's devastating. It's when he went down, it, it really took the wind out of my sails a little bit, but I quickly was like, all right, just win this game for Dre. And then we address that in the off season. And oh, it's, it's nor here nor there, but you have to feel devastated for Dre Greenlaw. Dre Greenlaw is a all pro level player an absolute baller stud. He brings the boom, the passion like that is 
he's every, I, I, I think he is every bit as good as Fred Warner. I really do. I really think he is like, he's got like you, the, the term he's got that dog in him is so loosely thrown around these days. Dre Greenlaw's got that dog in it. Like, that's what it really looks like, right? A dude who plays with the screw loose, no regard for his own body. He's hitting the absolute you-know-what out of you every single play, bringing the juice every play, playing like a man who is insane on the football field. That is what it's about. Those are the dudes that win football games. Uh, so, and, and he is one of my favorites to watch. So to see him go down, that uh, it's still a gut punch. I'd still... Uh, it's rough. It's rough. But the fact of the matter is the Niners are going to have to replace him. They're going to have to find bodies to replace him. I believe Burks and Flanagan Fowles are also free agents. So what do you do there? Do you draft rookies? Do you sign a free agent? What does the cap space look like? Uh, that's definitely a glaring need this offseason. As much as people want to upgrade the O-line, me, myself included, um, there are pressing issues, right? Especially in the linebacker room, you know, Chase Young, Randy Gregory, um, all leaving, right? D, a lot of D linemen leaving. You got to, you got to refill that D line room, right? Who's going to be the other edge rusher out, you know, opposite of Nick Bosa. That's a huge question mark. Um, you know, so lots of questions to answer. For my money, that's it for our first episode of the Keysar podcast. I hope you enjoyed. I really, really enjoyed um, doing this first episode. Uh, I can't wait to see. Shoot, day was freaking what? Not even a couple days into the off season, and we've already got huge, huge breaking news um, with the with the firing of Steve Wilkes. I, I can't wait to see what happens next. Right? I feel bad for Steve Wilkes as a coach. I can't help but feel bad. The, it's a really tough break to have those that good of results coach that well in the Super Bowl and be let go. But I think it was just a, a difference in philosophy and lesson. Whatever happened behind happens behind closed doors, there's a lot we're probably not aware of as well. But until next time, this is your host, Adam Kudura, signing off for the Keysar Podcast. Have a great day.